today, I want to do what probably no other preacher is doing in town on the Sunday after Easter. I want to preach a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How will that be? Because even though Easter is over with, Jesus is still alive. And I think if we can focus on that, then we'll be all right. Now, one of the things I said last week in the sermon, I want to kind of pick up here, and then we'll just go. I made the statement that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just a fact to be believed. The resurrection is a truth to be applied. And so the resurrection, don't think of it as something that you're supposed to say, okay, Jesus was born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose from the dead. Check, check, check. I believe all that. No, it's not just a fact to be believed. It is a truth to be applied so that when we're out there in life, and we all are, and we have things going on in our worlds. Sometimes there are family issues. Sometimes there are health problems. There are work demands, financial pressures, all kind of things going on in life. But if we can learn to look at what's happening in life through the lens of the resurrection and to remember that Jesus Christ is alive, the resurrection changes everything. And what I want us to think about today, it specifically changes how we deal with doubt in our life. And so this whole sermon this morning is built around doubt and the promises of God. And the interesting thing about this is, as we read the Easter story in the New Testament, we find that doubt was part of the story. Even after the resurrection, most of us are familiar with doubting Thomas. He didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead until he saw him with his own eyes. Well, in our passage this morning, we're going to see how some of the other disciples had that same problem. Now, before we get into this, I want to give a definition for, of doubt. What do I mean by doubt? Doubt is simply questioning God's ability to keep a promise. Now, in the Bible, we read thousands and thousands of promises from God. There, oh, interestingly enough, there are over 31,000 verses in the Bible. Of those 31,000, over 7,000 of those verses are promises. One student of Scripture spent over a year and a half of his time counting up all the promises in the Bible, and he came up with 7,487. So there are a lot of promises in here. So the Christian life largely is finding these promises, whether it's in your quiet time, you're reading the Bible, and you find a promise. I was reading yesterday in Hosea, and I came across a promise I had never noticed in my life out of chapter 14, and I thought, wow. And I said, that's a promise. I'm going to claim that. Sometime in our Bible reading, sometimes in a sermon like this, sometimes you read a book, sometimes you hear the radio, and you, read, you hear one of these promises of God. The Christian life is finding a promise, it is claiming a promise, believing that promise, and then applying that promise to whatever it is that you're going through in your life. Now, doubt is when we read these promises and we question God's ability to keep the promise. Now, we may not question His ability in that we know God can do anything, but we question whether or not God will make that promise a reality in our lives. And so in the Christian life, we have this tension between faith that says, I believe the promise. Doubt says, I'm not sure if this promise is going to be true in my life. And so doubt is a real problem. Now, when I say doubt, you may think, well, I don't think I've ever really struggled with doubt and questioning God's ability to keep a promise. Well, good if you haven't. But sometimes it's not, we don't even think of the problem that we're having as doubt. Sometimes we'll use words like worry. 
Say, boy, I'm just worried about something. Or sometimes we'll say, boy, I'm really battling fear right now. Or sometimes a person will say, man, anxiety, I just find myself anxious all the time. My mind is running. I can't relax. Well, worry, fear, and anxiety are the offspring of doubt. Doubt is the mother's sin, and those are the little children that come from doubt. What is doubt? Doubt is questioning God's ability to keep a promise. And so when you question whether or not God can keep this promise to you, whatever the promise is, you're going to be worried about things. That's why Jesus said so many times, do not worry. Don't worry about this. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about anything. Fear not. Be not afraid. Why was he saying that? Because the people were worried. They were afraid. The New Testament says, be anxious for nothing. Why does it say that? Because Jesus knew. He's looking around at everybody saying, everybody's uptight. Everybody's anxious. What is the real problem? The real problem was doubt. And it manifests itself in worry, fear, anxiety, and other ways. But if we can learn to take these promises in the Scripture, read them, black ink on white paper, believe them, claim them, and then apply them to our own lives, what are we going to do? We're going to be walking by faith. And if we're walking by faith, worry, fear, and anxiety are not going to be a part of our lives. Now, one thing I have learned in my own life, and I've seen it in others' lives, and you've probably experienced this too, when you go through things in life that are hard, difficult, trying, confusing, painful, hard, isolating times, normally you will either do one of three things. You will either panic, and probably all of us here have had some times in our lives where we have, we've panicked, maybe had a panic attack, or maybe we just felt a wave of panic Maybe it didn't turn into a full-blown attack, but we felt that feeling of panic. Sometimes a person goes through something, and they get past the panic stage. In other words, the initial shock has worn off, and they begin to pout. In other words, they get angry. God, why did you let this happen to me? Or maybe they pout with somebody else. So some people panic. Sometimes we pout, but God wants us to persevere. In other words, God wants us, whatever we go through in life, to be able to face it with faith and confidence. It doesn't mean that in the initial stages you don't have shock or even a feeling of panic or even a feeling of fear. Some of that is unavoidable. I mean, we're human, and sometimes when something happens, you go to work tomorrow, and you look at your desk, and your supervisor says, see me, and you go see your supervisor, and they say to you, we're having to cut down here because of the pandemic, and effective at the end of this month, you're not going to have a job. Well, that would cause anybody to feel fear and anxiety and even a feeling of panic. So that's okay. That's normal. What I'm saying is, and what the Bible is saying is, you can't stay in that mode. You've got to go from panic to a mode of perseverance and confidence and faith that says, somehow, way, God is going to come through for me. And so what we're trying to target today is the problem of doubt. And what we're trying to do is stop questioning God's ability to keep a promise. And what I want to make this very clear, this is a long introduction that I'm giving. I'll have to make up for it later on in this sermon. What I'm trying to say is, if Jesus Christ, before he was crucified, multiple times said to his disciples, in fact, if you read Matthew, don't look it up, but in Matthew 16, 17, and 20, on three separate occasions, Jesus said to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and then three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. 
Jesus made that promise, and then he kept that promise. He did what he said. And all I'm saying to you today is, if a person can say, before he dies, I'm going to be killed and rise from the dead. Friend, if he can keep that promise, he can keep every promise that he ever made. That's the whole tenor of this sermon today. And that's why I'm saying the, rec- the resurrection is not just a fact to be believed. It is a truth to be applied. He made a promise that he would come back to life again. He kept that promise. Then he will keep every promise that he's ever made. Having said that, if you would, open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 28. We're thinking today about the resurrection from Matthew's Gospel. Last week, we were in the Old Testament, studied the book of Job, and we saw how even in Old Testament times, Job had some understanding of the resurrection. Well, today, we're in the passage of Scripture, probably, that most preachers were preaching from on Easter Sunday. It's a traditional passage, and I want to read a good, not, not the whole chapter, certainly, but I want to read a few verses here, and I want you just to follow along, and if you didn't bring your Bible, that's okay. You just listen to the Word of God being read. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, that is Saturday, as the first day of the week, that is Sunday, began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Jesus has been buried. The Sabbath is over. They're coming to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. And the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Now listen to the next three words. As he Said Those three words are the key to this message today. As he said, come, see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Now Jesus is talking to these same ladies. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Talking about the disciples. Now look in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee. This is northern Israel. He had been crucified in Jerusalem, southern Israel. Now they're going to northern Israel, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw Jesus, that is the disciples, this is Peter and Andrew and James and John. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but watch this, but some doubted. Now what is it they were doubting? They're seeing the risen Christ. Well, they're doubting, first of all, his presence. They're thinking, is this really Jesus? But even more importantly than that, they are doubting his promise. He had promised them multiple times, we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, I'm rising from the dead. He's done that. And now they see him on the mountain. He told them he would meet them on after the resurrection, and they're doubting. What were they doing? They were questioning the ability of Jesus Christ to keep a promise, and it caused all kind of problems in their life. And again, so this morning, what we're doing, we're targeting doubt. And we we want to get to the place in our lives where we say, you know what? The Bible has over 7,000 promises from God. 
and I believe them. And I don't just believe them academically or intellectually. I believe them personally. And I am applying these promises to my life. And that will help me. Now, what I want to do in this message, and this is just going to be a little bit different today, how this sermon, just the whole sermon itself is going to be different. What I want to do is to give you a handful of promises. We'll just see how we do on time. Six, seven, eight promises. And I want us to think about what subjects these promises address in our lives, and then how we can apply these promises in whatever situation that we're going through. And so some of the verses we'll look up, some of them I might just quote, and you can think about it. But do turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John, because we're not far away from there. We're in Matthew. In John chapter 11, Jesus made a promise that has to do with death. What happens when a person dies? And in this particular passage of Scripture, he was talking to a lady whose brother had just died. And she was sad, and she missed her brother, naturally, and she wished that Jesus had healed him and that he never would have died. But in John chapter 11, in verse 26, one of the greatest promises in all the Word of God about death, and here's what Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, there's the promise. Jesus said, if a person has been born again and they believe in me, they trust in me, that person will never die. Well, obviously, that was confusing to this lady because her brother had just died and her brother did believe in Jesus. And she no doubt is thinking, well, now, wait a second. If, if somebody lives and believes in you, what do you mean they'll never die? And then Jesus asked this question. He said, do you believe this? And then she said back to him, yes, Lord, I believe it. And she didn't understand it. But Jesus said it, so she knew that it was true. Now, here's what Jesus was saying. Jesus was not saying, first of all, that if you believe in him, your body won't die. He wasn't saying that you're just never going to die. What he was saying was, if you believe in him, your spirit and your soul will never die. Bodies die, souls don't die. Bodies are mortal, souls are immortal. The person who believes in me, Jesus said, that person's spirit, their soul will never die. Now, Jesus not only said that, and certainly it's true, Jesus himself experienced that. Let me say something you may never have thought about. Jesus was alive before the resurrection ever happened. We think of the resurrection as Jesus' body came, you know, Jesus came back to life. Well, his body came back to life. There is a sense in which Jesus came back to life at the resurrection. But there's another sense that Jesus never had died. The only thing died with Jesus was his body. Do you remember when Jesus was dying on that cross and he's hanging between two thieves? And one of those criminals turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was feeling guilty for his sins. So he asked Jesus to forgive and save him. And Jesus said to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is just another way to talk about heaven. So it's interesting. Jesus said, you're about to die and I'm about to die. But on the day that we die, we're going to be together in heaven. What he was saying is, your body's going to be buried, my body's going to be buried. But we're not bodies anyway. We're spirits. We're souls. And we will live forever. And so while Jesus' body was in that tomb, Jesus, his spirit, his soul was in heaven with God. And he took this repentant thief there. Which says to me, when it comes to death... I mean, that, I don't know what that does for you, but it gives me great comfort and, and confidence as, and courage as I think about my own death coming out there one day to know that there's coming a day when my heart will beat for the last time. 
But when that happens, before the funeral home gets to wherever I am to take my body away, I will have already been in the presence of God for a good long while. I mean, for several hours, minutes or hours or however long it takes. I mean, absent from the body and present with the Lord. And not only is that true for us, think about the people in your life who you've lost. A spouse, a parent, a child, a, a sibling, a friend. Friend, if that person was saved, they haven't died. Their body died. But they are alive in the presence of God. We've had a lot of funerals lately. I've spoke, spoken at three in the last few days. And on one of those funerals, I was, we were in the chapel. And I was talking about death and how this person who died was saved and they were in heaven. And I was just trying to comfort the family. And I said something to the family I never have said at a funeral or any other setting. But it was, I think it was from God. It was interesting. I said to the family, because their mother had died, I said, your mother knows something that none of us know yet. And I said, your mother knows the color of Jesus' eyes. Now, I don't know what color eyes Jesus, Jesus has. In fact, I have a friend, a Jewish man, lives in Phoenix, Arizona. And I called him last night to check on him and talk about him. And I asked him, I said, let me ask you a question. What color eyes do you have? That's a strange question to ask another man, by the way, to ask him that. He said, I have green eyes. Why are you asking about the color of my eyes? I said, what color eyes does your brother have? Green, your father, brown, your mother, blue. I said, well, I've just been thinking lately about the color of eyes. And I didn't go into it with him. But you think about that. Your family member who has physically died, they have, they're not dead. They're alive in the presence of God. And right now, they could say to us, Jesus has blue eyes. I guess I've always assumed Jesus had brown eyes because a lot of the pictures depict him with brown. Maybe he has brown eyes. Maybe he has green eyes. I don't know what color eyes he has. But I know this, that one you love who's in heaven right now, they know the color of Jesus' eyes. Why? Because they're alive. And they are in the presence of God. Now, Turn, in fact, don't even turn. If you're a note taker, let me give you some other verses just to jot down. And these, I'm going to give you three verses here to illustrate the same point. These verses illustrate that when we're going through something in life where, I mean, it is hard. We feel like our lives have fallen apart and they can literally have come unraveled. I want to give you three verses that have been anchors for me at different times in my life when I've been through something like that. First of all, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. Second, Romans 8, 28. And third, Psalm 138 and verse 8. And I can remember times in my life, lots of, several times, where those verses have been the things that have kept me going in my life. Genesis 50, 20 has a phrase that says, God meant it for good. Romans 8, 28 says, all things work together for good to those who love God. And Psalm 138, 8 says that the Lord will perfect or complete that which concerns me. And I, I cannot tell you how meaningful time, many meaningful prayer times I've had with God where I have said, God, your word says that you mean it for good. And what I'm going through right now doesn't feel very good to me. But the Bible says, you say, you mean it for good. God, the Bible says you're going to bring, not only do you mean it for good, you're going to cause it to work for good. And not only that, God, you're going to complete and perfect 
That is, you're going to make a way for me. You're going to straighten out a crooked path and make it possible for me to move forward by faith. And so, God, these are your verses. And many times in my life, here's what I've said to God in times. I say, God, I ask you to take those verses, dip them in the blood of Jesus, and stamp them across my life in this situation I'm going through right now. You meant it for good. All things work together for good. And you're going to perfect that which concerns me. And so that, those, those are promises. And some of you today, you're up against it physically, emotionally, relationally, financially. And you came to church today because it's the right thing to do. But you need a word from God. And that's what I'm standing here giving you today. One word after another. And I'm saying to you, if you'll lock into one of these promises and know that whatever you're going through in life was intended by God, allowed by God into your life to do indescribable good for you if you will respond properly. Now, let me give you another verse that has to do when we're going through times, you know, where we feel like our prayers are not being answered, our needs are not being met, we're lacking in some way. Let me give you two verses. First of all, Psalm 84 and verse 11. Listen to how this verse ends. No good thing will you withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then Psalm 3410 basically says the same thing. It says, those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. How many of you would say, and don't raise your hand today, but how many of you would say you're praying for something in your life that you think it would be good if God did this for me? It'd be good for my family. It'd be good for me professionally or in my business if God would answer this prayer. And yet it's not being answered. And yet the Bible says no good thing will God withhold and, and uh, you know, we're not going to lack any good thing. Just know this. When it, when it says no good thing will he withhold, that's talking about something good from God's perspective. Sometimes we look at our lives and we think, God, if you would do this for me and answer this prayer, that would be a good thing. And yet God looks at it and says, it might be good from your perspective, but from my perspective, that would be the worst thing that could happen to you. And so just know that anything that God deems good has your name written on it if you will walk uprightly and if you will follow after God. And then back, if you could just turn back to Matthew, something else. Here's another verse, and we could just look at verses all day, but I I do want to show you a couple more. In Matthew chapter 28, At the very end of the chapter in verse 20, in the Great Commission, where Jesus is telling them to go share their faith and make disciples and so on, he says something here that is very interesting, and it helps us with loneliness when we're feeling lonely. And I think that's something that all of us experience from time to time. But notice what Jesus said, I am with you always. I'm with you always. That promise repeats itself throughout the Bible. Hebrews 13, 5, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Old Testament, New Testament, here's the promise. Jesus said, I am with you always. And yet, sometimes we don't feel like God's with us. Sometimes we feel alone, whether you live alone or sometimes, sometimes I actually feel less alone. Now, this is not always true. Sometimes it's the opposite. But sometimes I feel less alone when I'm by myself. Sometimes I feel more alone when I'm with people, and then sometimes it's the other way. But where, whenever or however we may feel loneliness, we need to be reminded of something. Listen to me, friend. If you are saved, you are never alone. Jesus Christ is not only living in your heart, He is with you at every single moment of your life. And yet loneliness is something that we battle sometimes and we struggle with sometimes. I'm reading a book I guess maybe this is what got me thinking about loneliness by Max Licato. 
that's called You Are Never Alone. And if you're looking for a good book, this is a good one. Anything Max Licato writes is excellent. And uh, he, he was writing in the first chapter of this about some of the problems that loneliness can cause for people. And I want you to listen to what he learned. One study found that loneliness is as dangerous to one's health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It can lead to dementia, can lead to Alzheimer's, heart disease, a weakened immune system, and a shorter lifespan. Administrators of one of the largest hospitals in America cite loneliness as a major reason for the overcrowded emergency rooms. Parkland Hospital of Dallas. Now, if you've ever heard of that hospital, you probably have because that's where President Kennedy was taken when he was shot. But this particular hospital made this startling discovery as they were looking for ways to unclog the system. They analyzed data and compiled a list of high utilizers. They identified 80 patients who went to four emergency rooms 5,139 times in a 12-month period, costing the system more than $14 million. Now, I want to make sure that sinks in. In Dallas, there were 80 people who went in a course of one year to the emergency room over 5,000 times. I mean, you do the math on that hundreds of times that each of these are, uh, or most of these were going to the emergency room over 5,000 times. Once they identified the names of the repeat visitors, they commissioned teams to meet with them and determine the reason. Their conclusion, loneliness. In other words, they got all these 80 people together, and they met with them individually, and they said, you've been in the emergency room, you know, in the last year, sir. You've been in the emergency room 85 times. Sir, you've been in the emergency room 110 times. Ma'am, you've been in the emergency room 200 times. What is, the, what is driving this? It's not a physical problem. Your tests have come back clear. Why are you coming to the emergency room? Loneliness. They were lonely. Poverty and food shortage were contributing factors, but the number one determinant was a sense of isolation. The emergency room provided three things, attention, kindness, and care. Hence the, multi- hence the multitude return, the multiple return visits. They wanted to know that someone cares. Now, I'll say this. I've been in the emergency room a handful of times in my life. I am thankful for every doctor I've met there. I'm thankful for every nurse who's ever helped me there. I'm thankful for the attention, the kindness, and the care that I have received there. But friend, let me just say this. All due respect to those who do that that noble job. You talk about, by the way, this is a good time for me to say this. Some of the true heroes during the last 13 months have been the doctors and the nurses and the healthcare workers who every day are putting their life and health on the line to help people during this COVID-19. They... They're some of my heroes. Goodness gracious what they're doing. And the school teachers are right up there with them, by the way. Um, I thank God for the kindness, for the attention, and for the care that I have received every time I've been to emergency room. But let me say this, friend. There's a better place to receive all those things than going to the emergency room. And that is at the feet of Jesus Christ himself. If you are saved, You have the presence of Jesus Christ with you wherever you are. I want to tell you something. I was not planning on saying this. I'll tell this and and kind of wind this up. In fact, I wasn't planning on telling this to anybody, at least for a while. But in the first sermon, I got to this particular point, and I I just 
I didn't feel anything stopping me from saying it, and I felt like with God it might be okay. But I want to tell you an experience that I still don't know. I, I don't know what happened. But last night, I was home, and I was in my kitchen, and I was walking from my kitchen across my living room to get a bottle of water in a closet where I keep my water. And I was, I don't know exactly what time it was, 7 o'clock, 7.30 in the neighborhood of that. And as I was walking across out of my peripheral vision in a chair, seated in the corner, I saw a person's body. And they were dressed in, in white. And when I first saw them, it scared me. Because not only could I see somebody in that chair, I literally felt a presence. And it was so startling to me. Now, I'm, I live by myself, so I wasn't talking to anybody else. But when I looked at when I saw that, I, I not only jumped, I made a noise. Like, oh, what, you know, like that. I didn't know what it was. And I turned and looked at it. And about the time I looked at that chair, whatever it was, was gone. Now, it may have been the light coming through the window. may have been all it was. I went and got my water, went back into the kitchen, and I was thinking about that. And I, the night went on, and I was working on my sermon mainly last night. And then later in the night, I kind of went, before I went to bed, I went back to that spot in my living room. And, and I said to God, I said, Lord... I don't know what happened at here earlier tonight. I don't know if that was you giving me a glimpse of yourself. There are two reasons I believe that might have been the case. Number one, I not only saw something, but I felt something. And number two, I didn't see his face. And that's a whole other deal. But if you read in the Bible, you know, like God doesn't let people see his face. Either until you get to heaven, typically, certainly when you get to heaven, we'll see his face. Or maybe right before you go to heaven, you might see his face. But I didn't see any face. I just saw a body in a, in a white robe. But it may have just been the way the light came in. Maybe I imagined it. I don't know. Maybe it was Jesus. But before I went to bed last night, basically I said to God, I said, God, I don't know what that was. But I know this. I have your presence with me in this house, at that church, and in my life, and wherever I am, whether I can see you or not, I know that you're with me, not because I may or may not have had a vision. I know that you're with me because I have a promise from you that you would never leave me and that you would never forsake me. And I'm saying that's a promise. So you've got to claim that promise. The, the presence of God becomes real to us when we claim his presence by faith. I was home the other morning. This has been a few weeks ago. I was praying, and I said, God, I'm asking you to give me an awareness of your presence. I mean, I know God's with me just like you know God's with you. And I felt like God say to me, John, you don't need to ask for an awareness of my presence. You need to claim my presence by faith. In other words, I've already, we've already got his presence so how do we experience it? How do we enjoy God's presence? We say, man, I, I want to go to church on Sunday, and maybe they'll sing one of those songs. It really, man, it does something to me, and I can feel the presence of God. Or I, maybe we'll go to church on Sunday, and maybe during this sermon, John will really bring it strong. And when he gets on a roll or something, I'll feel the presence of God. Well, maybe so. But if you're dependent upon me bringing it, or if you're dependent on some song doing it, first of all, you're only going to experience the presence of God in your life for about one hour a week. 
But if you can get to a place where you say, you know what, I hope John brings it, and I know the music will be wonderful, and I I'll, I'll probably will feel something, but you know what, I'm not dependent upon that. Because I have a promise from God that He would never leave me and that He would never forsake me. Now, there's one other promise I want to mention. In John chapter 6 and in verse number 37, Jesus said this, The person who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. I will never cast out. I will accept them. I will receive them. It's a salvation promise. We've been looking at different promises today. This is a salvation promise. And Jesus said, the person who comes to me, I will never drive them away. I will never send them away. I will never say no. I will never reject them. I will never say, sorry, you're not good enough. No. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will accept them, I'll receive them, and I will say